Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and you're Susanna Greer. How's it going, Dr. Greer? <laughs> I am, Dr. Greer. It's it's good. We're rounding out February, which is why we are having this interview today. We're going to talk about some colorectal cancer. For sure. And I need some sunshine so I can be less sedentary, as this podcast reminded me. I need to be more active. Um, mm-hmm. We spoke with Dr. Peter Campbell, our colleague. Good old Pete. He is a scientific director of epidemiology research in the population science department here at the American Cancer Society. He's really one of the, one of the best in the world at what he does. His work is at the intersection of pathology, molecular biology, genetics, and clinical medicine. It involves huge uh, international consortia and the American Cancer Society's own cancer prevention studies. And it includes massive amounts of survey data and biologic specimens from millions of people. He heads up GI tract cancer epidemiology research here at ACS. But in this conversation, Susanna, you spent a lot of time talking about a really troubling trend, and that's early onset colorectal cancer. Yeah, exactly. You're you're right. I mean, Pete could talk to us in so many different areas of not only colorectal cancer, but other GI cancers. But I wanted to, I wanted to get his insight on an alarming trend. And and I should give full credit to our colleagues at ACS who raised the red flag that incidence and mortality of colorectal cancer is increasing in younger adults. So adults that are less than 50. And so we spent a lot of time talking to Pete about what are the hypotheses behind these trends, um, how the data that he and his colleagues are collecting may help us to to dive into the environmental and biological reasons that may be driving these trends. And then most importantly, what we might do, right? What are the interventions that the ACS might recommend? So this is such a super, it's so important and concerning and um, in some ways just very, I don't know, I don't know the word is enlightening or makes you feel better to know that there are individuals like Pete and his team who are making just these incredible discoveries that are eventually going to change the way that we um, not only diagnose and treat colorectal cancer, but the things that we as individuals can do to change our potential for uh, the incidence of this disease. So I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Pete. Good morning, Pete. How are you? Hey, good morning, Suzanne. I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing? You know, I am good. And I am really excited to talk to you today. We wanted to interview you because we're coming up on Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month and you know, the American Cancer Society, we've made so much progress in this space, and you and your team have been a big part of that. So if you're ready, let's um, let's dive right in. Sure, let's go. <laughs> All right, maybe dive right in may not be the, the best word to use. <laughs> Gotta watch your metaphors. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Right, but here we go. Okay, so let me back up a sec, because our listeners don't have the same privilege that I do and that Joe does, which is knowing you and having lots of conversations with you in the hallway and reading about your fantastic work and all you've done in the colorectal cancer space. So 
let's level set for our audience a bit. Maybe just help us understand what it is that you do here at the American Cancer Society and what you spend most of your time thinking about. I guess, give us your elevator pitch. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, so I spend probably most of my research time thinking about why things like obesity, physical inactivity, diabetes, and other you know, mostly modifiable factors are linked uh, to colorectal cancers. Now, sometimes I, I think about other GI tract cancers as well, like uh, you know, liver cancer, for example. And some of that work that we've done has been pretty foundational. So we showed you know, associations between, say, uh, type 2 diabetes and colon cancer incidents. And in more recent years, we've been, you know, we've been digging deeper into sort of the mechanisms, the pathways, you know, the underlying biology of why uh, those risk factors are risk factors for, for colon cancer. You know, and there we're looking at, um, you know, circulating biomarkers, germline genetics, tumor mutations, you know, and the, the point here is really to, to better understand, you know, sort of how the, um, the, the public health interventions and the biology go together. Ah, I really love that. And I think the way that you shared that is a really nice way to frame everything you do with, I guess, a summative goal being making recommendations around lifestyle changes that we can make that are based in, in science. Um, what you shared is that by understanding the biology of these diseases and how they happened, You've done some foundational work in this space, but we can make recommendations that will help our listeners to make better decisions. Is that a, a fair way to say it? Is that a good summary? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, really part of that rationale is when you have a biomarker or something biologic, you, you have better evidence that the association is real. You know, we're not simply showing that some you know, check mark on a questionnaire is correlated with an outcome, you know, 10, 15 years later, that might simply be coincidental. You know, when you see a biologic change in something you can measure in blood or in a tumor, um, you know, you, you have another level of evidence to show that, you know, the lifestyle recommendation we're making is really founded in science. And in addition to the lifestyle stuff that we see on questionnaires, we can measure things in, in blood, uh, in tumor tissue that really backs up that, that that association is real. Okay, so before we dive more into that data, I'd, I'd love it if you would help us understand more about why it is that we at the American Cancer Society think so much about colorectal cancer. So help us to understand Let's talk about a couple of things. What's changing first around incidence and mortality rates in colorectal cancer? And then there's a, a second piece I'd like for you to level set with us, and that is that there's something really interesting that your team is thinking a lot about because there are differences in incidence and mortality between older and younger Americans. So maybe you could tell us that story. Yeah, they do differ. Uh, you know, rates between older and younger Americans. Uh, so let's start with the, the big numbers. You know, our colleagues in data science have estimated that about, I think just under 150,000 uh, new diagnoses of colon and rectal cancers are expected this year. And I think around 53,000 deaths. 
Yeah, so those are the totals. You know, those are very, very large burdens of disease from colorectal cancer. Um, you know, and then you asked about younger versus older. So of, of those 150,000 new diagnoses, uh, about 17,000 of them will occur in adults under the age of 50. You know, so that's the so-called early onset colorectal cancer that we're really concerned about recently. You know, so that's what, like 12%, I think, of the total new diagnoses. Um, so that's not a huge proportion. But what we're really a lot more concerned about is that that proportion has increased over time. Mm -hmm. So so if we go back to, to 1995, uh, you know, if you took 100,000 people um, under the age of 50, maybe five of them would be diagnosed with colon cancer at that younger age. And now wow. those rates are up to about eight or nine. You know, so okay. they've, they've increased quite a bit. You know, if you looked at the incidence rates, which we can't do on a podcast, but you would see a, a steady increase from 1995 to about 2015, you know, the year, the, the, the most recent year, uh, the data were available. Um, you know, and then if we, if we look at older adults, those those incidence rates are, are several times higher. You know, they're, you know, to take another 100,000 people over the age of 65, um, you'd expect about 350 of them to be diagnosed with colon cancer, colon or rectal cancer um, back in 95. And those rates have now dropped to about 200 per 100,000 people in more recent years. So we're seeing two, you know, two, two different age groups with two very different trends over those, those 20 years. You know, in younger people, it's going up and in older people, it's going way down. All right, let's, let's complicate it just a little bit further. <laughs> okay. Which... I can Let's add on another see layer. waving your arms <laughs> and write it and showing me the increase in younger adults and the decrease. Mm. So our viewers can all look at that same roller coaster. But but I think you've laid yeah. out some pretty fundamental challenges, which is why is it that the incident rates of colorectal cancer are increasing in younger adults and decreasing in older adults? But it seems like the, the biggest challenge is that colorectal cancer really remains a huge disease burden in the United States and really all over the world. And then underlying that, we have these different groups with different with different changes in disease burden. So maybe one more thing before we really move into this data is that I'd like to talk a little bit more about what's happening in the black community. Many of us were shocked at the loss of Chadwick Bozeman at the really young age of 43 from colorectal cancer. And this loss certainly put a spotlight on the disease burden in the African-American and black communities. So help us, so this is the other layer I wanted you to add, help us to understand incidence and mortality rates uh, for colorectal cancer and how they differ by race and ethnicity. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, his, his diagnosis and death truly were tragic. You know, especially at such a such a young age. Um, so black men and women, African American men and women, they they do have the highest rates in the U.S. Um, there are, I think, somewhere around just short of 50 diagnoses per 100,000 people a year. Um, second, you know, in terms of ranking, would be uh, American Indians and Alaskan Natives, and that's maybe that's too broad of a category, but it's how you know, we've chosen to, uh, to, to group people. Uh, then third is uh, non-Hispanic whites. Um, fourth is Hispanic and Latinx populations. 
And then the lowest rates are observed in uh, Asian and Pacific Islander groups. Um, but if you break that second group apart, American Indians and Alaskan Natives, it's actually Alaskan Natives that have the absolute highest rates. Um, they have some of the highest rates in the world, actually, uh, about 89 cases per per 100,000 people again. So, you know, there's a, a very undue burden of disease in, in that group. Well, that's really enlightening. Um, maybe let's dive down into a different piece into different pieces of this. Um, you shared with us a lot of statistics, and let's loop back and remind our listeners, colorectal cancer remains a huge challenge, huge disease burden, but we do see differences in different parts of the population. You shared with us a piece of good news that the incidence rate of colorectal cancer is decreasing in older adults. A challenging space that we're in right now is that the incidence rate is increasing in younger adults. And then we have very different breakdowns um, of incidence rates and mortalities based on different ethnicities um, who share very different disease burdens. So this is a lot. I mean, this is this is a, to say it's a challenging space is probably the understatement of the year. So. Maybe let, let's talk a little bit about this data, just just for starters. So why? Help us to understand why why are some of these things happening? Let's let's start with the decrease in older adults. So they're they're probably going down because because of colorectal cancer screening and early detection, you know, like FOBT or stool based uh, detection methods and colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy. Um, so those those will drive down incidence because we're you know we're catching tumors before they occur you know when there's still polyps polyp is excised the cancer never occurs you know a life may have been saved uh, mortality rates are going down for for those reasons as well you know maybe you know a stage one tumor is caught um, it's uh, it's excised the patient has minimal treatment and you know goes on to live a, a full and healthy life. Um, mortality is also going down because of um, better treatments, you know, especially for metastatic disease in the last 20 years. Um, you know, so that's, that's the easy part. <laughs> you know, if you want to talk about the, uh, you know, what's going on in younger adults, that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's a little bit more complicated. Um, yeah, absolutely. So help us to understand why those same things might not be true. Um, why, sure. why wouldn't screening and, you know, things like treatments and have this yeah. similar impact on younger adults. Yeah, so, well, pr primarily younger adults aren't aren't getting screened, you know, until I think in 2018, ACS changed. We, you know, we uh, suggested recommendations to the, uh, or changes to the screening age. We lowered it from 50 down to 45. Um, but men and women under age 50 aren't really, you know, using screening modalities like like older adults are. You know, even since the, the recommendation uh, has been changed, that that is true. So, you know, why these rates are going up in younger adults um, who have historically not screened, we know that's part of it. Um, but it's, you know, it's really, you know, it's a million dollar, it's a several million dollar question. Mm. You know, so we're seeing something that's called, um, you know, it's like a birth cohort effect. You know, so those of us that were born in the late 60s, 
through to probably the late 70s, you know, our risk of colorectal cancer is a lot higher than previous generations when, when they were our age. So something must have happened or is happening, you know, to, to adults aged, you know, right now the, the age group would be about 35 through, through to about 55. So it's a pretty big band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know exactly what those factors are, but we have a lot of hypotheses. Um, you know, that might include the fact that we are more sedentary than previous generations. Uh, we've been more overweight. We've been obese earlier in life. You know, just as a general cohort, you know, painting everybody with the same brushes, as dangerous as that can be sometimes. Um, you know, and then there are other hypotheses related to, uh, you know, early life antibiotic use. You know, that may have disrupted our gut microbiota when we were younger and those changes in the gut microbiota might, um, you know, create an environment more prone to uh, developing colorectal cancer. You know, there also might, there are some people that think, um, you know, some food processing ingredients uh, and practices that started in the 70s and 80s might be part of, you know, this, uh, this story as well. You know, I think we have a lot more hypotheses so far than we have actual, you know, answers or, or uh, you know, real empirical data on it. Yeah, absolutely. And would you say that some of those things might apply when you look at that breakdown that you shared with us of different ethnic groups where we think about changes in things like body type and antibiotic use and food practices? Um, maybe give us some insight there. Uh, for, for racial disparity? Um yeah. What to, to it's some a extent, it's a different yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. So to you know, that's that's a an equally important question. You know, what's driving the disparities? Uh, it's probably not some of those factors that I listed because those those have changed over time, and the yeah. and the things that change over time tend to affect everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, but what might be driving the disparities is probably more related to access to care, socioeconomic status, which has you know, huge underlying implications for uh, for risk factors like smoking, for obesity, for access to, you know, obviously access to care is, you know, maybe the most important driver in mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. where we're not a single payer, you know, universal kind of healthcare system. Um, so the, then, you know, coming back to the Alaskan Natives, there's an, an additional layer there, which probably r- relates to um, Helicobacter pylori infection. You know, mm-hmm. and and those those populations, that infection tends to be pretty endemic. Um, you know, I have uh, colleagues at Mayo Clinic in uh, in Rochester that have you know worked in those communities. They've they've tried to eradicate um, H. pylori, and you know it, it's it's difficult. You know, they get rid of it for a little bit, and then it you know it tends to come back. And we know that H. pylori is a a, a pretty strong risk factor for colon cancer. So, um, you know, and it might be vitamin D. You know, in in Alaska, you know, lack of vitamin D exposure because there's you know not as much sunlight. There's not as much. Uh, it's also not as much prevalence of you know fresh fruit and vegetable. So there's you know there's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've shared that there's. I think you you said it in a really nice way. We have way more hypotheses and way more challenges than yeah. we do answers. So we do. Maybe let let's think about. I guess let's think about a population that encapsulates all of those groups, and that's younger adults. So this is a heavy lift, but where could we start to think about reversing these trends in colorectal cancer incidence and mortality in young yeah. adults? 
Sure. I mean, it, 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 it definitely is a heavy lift. Uh, you know, I think it's also necessary. You know, it's a it's an incredible opportunity, you know, not just to do really good science, but to, you know, do really good science and probably will save lives, um, you know, and how we get there. I mean, that's that's a really broad discussion. I think we could spend at least one or two podcasts just talking about how we got there, um, you know, but I think like any public health problem, it's it's probably going to take, you know, different people from different disciplines and with different kinds of expertise to kind of approach it. Um, you know, but how did we get there? So first we had, uh, you know, we had people like Becky Siegel and Ahmadine Jamal in our data science group. You know, they really alerted us to the fact that this was a problem, you know, and without, you know, without them highlighting those changes in, in rates over time, you know, people like me and you would have, you know, we, we, we would have never noticed this, I think. Sure. You know, and then, um, you know, we have our group in population science, uh, you know, and the, and, the, and the folks that I work with who are, you know, really, we're, we're trying to understand what's causing the trends. You know, so we collect large amounts of, you know, lifestyle, medical, you know, medical data. Um, we collect blood samples, tumor tissues um, from those younger people that were diagnosed with colorectal cancer, you know, to try to, to piece together um, what is associated with those diagnoses. So, so I think a lot of the listeners might be familiar with uh, cancer prevention study two and three. I think a lot of CPS3 participants would probably listen to this podcast. So, you know, thank you to them. You know, and when then, then in, in our group, we also lead efforts to combine studies like CPS2 and CPS3 with a lot of other studies, you know, so we have sufficient numbers to, to really make important um, findings from that data. And then last, you know, I, I think, you know, another thing that we that we do as, you know, at least as a society that that was important is, you know, lowering the screening age from 50 down to 45. You know, and if younger people start to take up, uh, you know, colorectal cancer screening modalities at, at younger ages, that'll save lives, too. Oh, OK, so nice. So my, my question was, where do we start? And you had some really solid recommendations, but. I'd like to dive down a little bit into one of them, which is um, <laughs> this isn't just Peter Campbell, although you've done a lot of work in this space, right? I mean, you shared that when we started that the American Cancer Society was really the first to to raise the red flag that incidence and mortality was increasing in colorectal cancer. And then you and your colleagues at the ACS began to dive down into this data. One thing that I think is really cool is that you shared is the, this data piece itself, and that is that we really need an enormous amount of data to start to understand these trends. Um, and you've been involved in a cool project in that space called the Colorectal Cancer Pooling Project. Um, it's not a swimming pool, but it is pooling. So help us, help the non-experts understand what what is the Colorectal Cancer Pooling Project and why is that potentially going to be really helpful in this space? Sure. So it's um. So we call it C2P2. We call it by the acronym. Um, if if you want to have a study funded, you have to have a cool acronym. So that's the one that we went with. Uh, this is a. Is that a, a, is that a cool acronym, Peter? I think it is. C2P2? It's like C squared P squared. Oh or C2P2. I like it. Okay, fine. It's, we tried. It's very so cool. As an aside, we did try to go with R2D2. Oh, that would have been cool. Or C3, no, sorry, it was C3PO. 
No, off C3PO. Any and of we, the. Yeah, so C3PO, we could make, we could squeeze it into like colorectal cancer consortia pooling. Yeah. You know, but it was, it was a little awkward. So, and we were worried about, you know, liability. So we, we stuck to C2P2. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so C2P2, it's a, it's a really large collaboration that uh, I co-founded with uh, colleagues at IARC about almost two years ago now. Um, and those are uh, my, my two very dear friends, Neil Murphy and Mark Gunter in uh, Lyon, France. And essentially, this is a collection of uh, 26 or 27 large prospective cohort studies. And that includes our, our own CPS3. Um, and in total, we have data from about 3.3 million, and that's million, um, men and wow. women. Uh, and of those 3.3 million men and women, there are a little bit over 2,000 participants who were diagnosed with um, colorectal cancer before age 50. Mm -hmm. And we have well over 37,000 participants who were diagnosed with colorectal cancer at later ages. So in that uh, enormous resource, we're going to compare risk factors for colorectal cancer according to um, age group, you know, younger versus older. Um, and then we'll also do some discovery work. You know, we, we have uh, a grant currently being considered where we will measure a little over 100 biomarkers uh, from blood, pre-diagnostic blood. Um, hey, hey, Peter, before yeah. you go on, help us, remind us what's a biomarker? What is that? What does yeah. that mean? So just as the name suggests, it's it's a biologic indicator. So a biomarker can be anything as simple as, you know, your your height, your body weight, or it can be, uh, you know, your your genetics. Uh, it, and in this case, what we're doing is we're we're measuring biomarkers that are circulating in a person's blood. Um, you know, on average, about five, six, seven, eight years prior to their diagnosis. So you're you're looking at risk factors, and you're doing this discovery work, which, as you explained, is gathering all of this this information from the yeah. blood of these individuals who yeah. so these are huge numbers um, of folks yeah. who have either been diagnosed early or later in life with colorectal cancer. So <laughs> once you have all this data. What are you going to do? Where could this lead us in five years? Kind of, what are you? What's your biggest hope? Yeah, um, biggest or so. So let's start with the. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The biggest hope would be, you know, we found a singular biomarker um, that was intervenable, druggable, or it was reflective of something that could actually be removed. You know, if uh, you know, if we found a protein or a xenobiotic that was a, you know, chemical found in, you know, dishwasher soap. And of course I'm making this up, but if it was, you know, a chemical found in dishwasher soap, and then if we got rid of that dishwasher soap, no more colon cancer happened in a younger age group. I mean, right. that would be, right. you, That's know, a home you know, the, the heavens would open up. Um, Nobel prizes would be awarded. Like that would be the best, best case scenario. Um, you know, but I think at a minimum, you know, maybe more realistically, in five years through through all of this work, we we should at least understand or better understand what the risk factors for early onset colorectal cancer are. You know, we, we've got, you know, that data, we're putting that data together to, um, you know, to, to at least understand the etiology of, of this disease. Yeah. Um, in other projects, we, you know, we are 
we, we have learned quite a bit about it in the last two or three years with other collaborations. Uh, but the approach that we're taking in C2P2 with the prospectively collected data is is going to be far superior, I think, to, to some of the other work we've done with which kind of mixes different kind of study designs. Okay, so this is a little bit of a selfish question because I think about this all the time, but tumor heterogeneity is a word that we use to explain the fact that tumors can not only be different between people, but with, within a person, right? So mm -hmm. it makes tumors like colorectal cancer, or I guess it presents unique treatment challenges because a drug that worked last month may not work this month or in a year. So this is switching a little bit, but I know a lot of listeners to the podcast think about this because they think about treatment and what will my treatment options be in a year. So what do you think about tumor heterogeneity? Are some of the projects that you are working on, do they have the potential to lead to some insights? Yeah, sure. So we, you know, I think shortly after I joined ACS in in 2008, we started a pilot study, first of all, to, to collect tumors, you know, to, to do any kind of work in in that area. You need the, the tumor material, which are luckily stored at hospitals for at least 10 years after the patient's diagnosis. Um, and then you also need the, uh, you know, the environmental or the, you know, the lifestyle data that's that's going to correspond to it. So back in, I think 2008, 2009, uh, Anusha Ladeka, who's one of our uh, study management stars, um, her and I started a pilot study uh, for participants in CPS2. And we spent, uh, you know, some part of those, that two years, seeing if we could collect uh, colorectal cancer tumor blocks from participants in CPS2. And uh, we, we quickly learned that we could, you know, so that was, you know, a, a good start to it. Uh, and then as time went on, uh, you know, we also started collecting other tumor types uh, in CPS2, and we also expanded into CPS3. You know, and now we have a, a full-time staff that is, you know, in our biospecimen management group that, um, that, that takes care of that work. Uh, you know, that's led by Carrie and Liz and, and Darcy in particular. But then after, you know, after you collect those tumors, you need to measure something in them, you know, and we, you know, we've learned how to, you know, extract uh, DNA, RNA, um, you know, we can measure proteins uh, in those tumor tissues, um, you know, and then we take the 800 or so tumors that we collected um, and we contribute to this large collaboration called uh, GECCO. Now, again, acronyms matter. It's the you know, Genetic Epidemiology of Colorectal Cancer Consortium, I think, for that one. And, uh, you know, there, you know, we we pool our 800 tumors with, um, I think it's 5,000 total tumor tissues. And we had a, a very large grant a couple of years ago to, uh, to, to look at, you know, several thousand mutations that occur in those tumor tissues. And what we're doing now is correlating how, you know, lifestyle factors and and other clinical factors might correlate with specific mutations that occur in those tumors to really nail down, you know, specific exposure cancer mutation outcomes. And, uh, you know, that's something that we, we're probably going to spend the next five, 10 years, I think, on really better understanding, you know, the, um, the science has advanced so quickly on, yeah. you know, what we can, what we can measure from, from tumor tissue now compared to just five years ago, um, it's just a, it's just incredible. 
That's just fascinating, Pete. So for those of us who don't get to hang out with your you and your acronym friends, what does that <laughs> what does that mean for us, right? So what might it mean for colorectal cancer survival? Let's just bottom line it. If there turn out to be associations yeah. between maybe how we live and what we do and the the differences within our tumors, what we call heterogeneity. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a really in-depth question. One implication for that might be, gosh, and this is a tough one, but it might be that, you know, our behaviors our lifestyle choices, if you will, long before we were ever diagnosed with cancer has really long-term effects on survival, you know, many years, mm. even decades later. You know, we, um, we published a paper just, uh, just a week or two ago, uh, you know, where we saw uh, aspirin, you know, aspirin use had a long-term, like really like 20 20, 30 years later, longer term, uh, impact on colorectal cancer survival. You know, and I think another implication might be, um, and this is a more generic answer, but, you know, I think with personalized medicine, um, there's, there's bound to be connections between, you know, our lifestyle, the specific mutations that occur in the tumor, and what druggable targets may exist for that mutation. You know, smoking, for example, leads to uh, a tumor with a methylation phenotype. In the future, there might be drugs that are good at demethylating that tumor um, and therefore is, is, would be a good candidate uh, you know, drug for former smokers. Yeah, you know, so and, there, there may be implications there too. That's so interesting. I mean, so for our listeners, they don't think about all these things all the time, but I think to me, this is really hopeful because it it reminds us that we do have, in a place that can feel very uncontrollable, we do have some control and we may end up having more control than we ever thought around how our behaviors and choices that we can make decisions that have really long, lifelong implications for yeah. how we survive um, cancer. So yeah. good luck, Peter, this is a, this is a challenging space. Um, all right, but I, I want to circle back to just kind of let's level set with where we are right now. And that is that while we are awfully excited about what you and your team are doing and this enormous amount of data that you're collecting and eventually the recommendations that will come out of it, um, we're in a hard spot. So we are still as a country and a world experiencing the stresses of the pandemic. And I think for many of us, all the good choices that maybe we would like to make either have gone to the back burner or really just are yeah. not a possibility right now. And I'm thinking about things like making good food choices and exercising. So uh, this is a complex time. So what what advice might you share to keep us on track? Yeah, yeah it's, gosh, yeah, it's been a challenging year, I think, for everyone, um, I, I'm, I'm sure. I guess, you know, if I had, if I had any, uh, well, I'll, what advice I give myself is that, you know, sometimes even small good habits are better than nothing at all. You know, a 10-minute walk around the house or around, you know, the, the, the front yard is probably better than, you know, sitting through, um, you know, another, you know, 15 minutes watching The Simpsons or, you know, CNN or whatever happens to be on TV. 
Um, so, you know, small changes are better than no changes at all. Um, you know, giving yourself credit, um, being kind to one another, I think is probably more important now than ever. Um, although I think that's always a good rule to follow. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Just And, and giving ourselves credit for those spaces where we are mm. doing the best we can, right? Yeah. And maybe acknowledging that. So, yeah. Peter, I'm awfully glad you're a part of our team and uh, just really excited to hear about this wonderful work. So I'll I'll let you get back to it. Thanks for sharing some time right. with us today. Hey, thanks, Suzanne. This is a lot of fun.